Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Danny. Hey. It's the 1st of December. Happy Advent calendar uh, first opening uh, of the window day. Thank you. I was waiting for someone to say that to me. <laughs> Do you have an advent calendar? No. But I wish I did. Me too. Don't have one yet. Um, have you have you seen any Christmas movies yet? Do you think it's too early to really get into Christmas movie watching season? Or no, I haven't watched it yet. But I don't have a TV. I don't have a TV license. You know, so I'm not. I'm sure they're being programmed now and have been since mid November. But I'm not really. I'm never flicking through the channels. I curate my own experience. You know. But for I mean, I'm the same way. I don't have a TV either. But for kids like us who are online um, mavens, yeah. Uh, we get a lot of our Christmas programming from things like Netflix, you know, and they, they, they produce these things and sort of dunk them on there. So like the algorithm has decided, you know, it needs X, Y, Z amount of Christmas programming and it, and it appears. Yeah, I've, I've, been seeing, I've been seeing it on my uh, watch list and stuff, but I've just, I haven't been clicking on them. Well, I've clicked on one. I watched a movie called The Night Before Christmas, Night with a K. Oh, I see. Like a um, medieval night. Like a medieval night, exactly, um, which is a Netflix movie. Uh, starring Vanessa Hudgens and uh, Josh Whitehouse. Don't really know who Josh Whitehouse is, but he looks a little bit like Heath Ledger. So uh, <laughs> I think he's been sort of cast on that basis. He's like a kind of blonde, curly-haired, uh, you know, guy, handsome guy. Sure. Um, and he is uh, a medieval knight um, who an old crone whisks into the future. Oh my god! To to have a have a romance with a, a contemporary uh, lonely woman, uh, played by Vanessa Hudgens. Um, and, uh, I would say it's pretty brain dead kind of stuff, <laughs> quite enjoyable. Yeah. I think like with these kinds of things, they're always like, you know, uh, so, so factory produced that like 99% of the, of the programming is, um, uh, you know what you're getting in for, sure. you, know, you know exactly how it's going to go, but there's always like one or two little odd things that kind of like, you know, come up through the factory machine. Like there's, there's always some kind of weirdness. Right, and the main thing in the night before Christmas, I think, like the most human kind of element to it that the algorithm would not have predicted, is the the very large number of references to hot chocolate. I think that like it's one of those movies that was written, uh, like you know, one in one evening by a sort of tired, cynical screenwriter. Like I can really imagine the guy, the sort of Hollywood hack, who's okay. To... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was written by it was written by a woman in this case. You know, but okay, I, I'm a woman, but I assume I assume I assume she is this sort of you know chewed out uh, cynical type. Sure, but um, she's called Cara J. Russell, by the way. No shade on her. I'm just as pure conjecture on my part. And uh, uh, but I imagine that you know she stayed up late one night. It's like deadline the next day. You've got a formulaic uh, Christmas comedy to churn out, but she had this real craving for hot chocolate. So like every few pages, there's like another <laughs> reference to it. So like the medieval night um uh loves hot chocolate and it's like but he calls it mead because he's medieval 
course. And uh, there's like a scene where they go to a supermarket and he just starts like taking loads and loads of cocoa powder. And then she's like, we don't need that much. And he's like, well, just sort of looks at her weirdly and keeps piling it into the, <laughs> into the shopping trolley. So he's like not just a medieval knight, but he's also kind of like a baby, you know, like sure. he just acts on his instincts kind of thing, uh, drawn by his whims. And there's like another bit where like her friend comes over and she's brought like a Christmas gift but it's like a, a kind of glass uh, carafe full of hot chocolate. Wow. <laughs> like, it looks a bit like Bailey's, but it's like the, okay. the context, he describes it as mead. So the context makes it seem pretty clear that it's hot chocolate. But it's like, odd that that'd be the thing you'd be most impressed by. I yeah. Mean, the, not I mean, like... <laughs> you probably could have had that, you know, yeah. <laughs> in the past. Like all the ingredients were around. How does he take, you know, cars and, uh, you know, He calls flash... cars like, I don't know, steam chariot horses or something like that of course he does <laughs> and there's a bit where she gives him like she believes him to be an amnesiac modern man obviously right right who's who's like just pretending to be a knight or you know he's got a mental illness or something um and uh, she gives him the keys to her car at some point he's like i need to drive your horse your your metal steel horse and she's like sure why not this could go wrong and it's like you wouldn't do that it's gonna cause a horrific accident it's clearly unwell man uh, how would how would you react if like a family friend came round and their and their gift was uh, a kind of glass bottle full of hot chocolate, <laughs> <laughs> with, with, with abject terror? <laughs> that, get that out of get that out of here! Have you right lost now. your mind? That is odd, it's especially because yeah. what do you heat up the whole thing? It's already hot. Does it right, come exactly. like steaming hot? Yeah, or like, you like put a pop this on the stove and it'll be ready glass? in a couple minutes. You don't want to heat up glass. That's, that's bad, no, well, right? You pour I'm... it out into a saucepan, I imagine. But yeah. it is weird. Yeah, that is weird. Do you think it seems more luxurious if it's already liquid rather than just the powder? I don't know. <laughs> so I imagined it as like they'd made some like mad company and made like hot chocolate and were pouring into these ornate vases and they mm. sort of you know solidify slightly. <laughs> you just go home and heat up this entire like sort of molten oh, hot glass it's like a sculpture. Chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Anyway, so better. So in other words, a full, fully fledged recommendation. Couldn't, cool. Couldn't recommend it enough. The night before Christmas, check it out. It's on Netflix. You'll know everything that's going to happen in it, except for the hot chocolate <laughs> stuff, which I've now spoiled for you. Um. Anyway, so, no, no surprises. No surprises there. So, Danny, give us a lowdown on the podcast. Describe it. I'm glad you are. So, film chat. It's about a group of five renowned detectives, each accompanied by a relative or associate, and they're invited to a dinner and a murder by the mysterious Sam Foster. The guests arrive at the mansion. Sorry. The guests arrive at his mansion and are met by a blind butler named Danny Moran, who is later joined by a deaf-mute illiterate cook named Yetta. Sam joins his guests at dinner, seals the house shut, and then announces that he is the greatest detective in the world. To prove his claim, he challenges the guests to solve a murder which will take place at midnight. A reward of $1 million will be presented to the winner. Before midnight, Danny is found dead and Sam disappears, only to reappear immediately after midnight, dead from a stab wound. Yetta is also discovered to have been an animated mannequin, now packed in a storage crate, and the party spend the rest of the night investigating and bickering. They are manipulated by a mysterious behind-the-scenes force, confused by red herrings, and baffled by the mechanical marvel that is Sam's mansion. Eventually, each sleuth presents his or her theory on the case, pointing out the other's past connections to Sam and their possible motives for murdering him. Is what I would be saying if this was a adaptation of the 1976 whodunit parody film, Murder by Death. This is in fact just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran and joining me, a man with the intelligence of Poirot, the virility of Marple, 
the the good looks of Columbo, the 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 height of Marlowe, <laughs> Sam Foster. Uh, thanks, Danny. On this week's episode, after ruining Star Wars by putting in too many women and making Luke Skywalker milk an, an alien walrus, Ryan Johnson is back with Knives Out. A fresh twist on a classic whodunit. Danny and I will both be giving our verdicts on how well Ryan done it. Plus, I yank my brow as high as it will possibly go in order to review Frozen 2, uh, the sequel to the Disney smash it animation. Children will love the songs, bright colors, and shapes, but we're adults. We ignore those uh, base things, and we understand that it's really a parable about making reparations for colonialism. That's what I used my big adult brain to understand as I was watching the film, and that's what I'll be telling our adult listeners all about. Danny, meanwhile, will give us his take on The Nightingale, Jennifer Kent's follow-up to her critically acclaimed horror, The Babadook. Like Frozen 2, it also tackles themes of colonialism, but as far as I understand, there's not as many show tunes or sparkling magic effects in it, uh, but a lot more horrific, violent crimes. Um, On the news front, we mull over two Michael Jackson-related projects that sound like they could be daring, tasteless, awful. (laughs) Don't know. We'll we'll have to find out. And we check out a recent BBC poll on the 100 greatest films directed by women. All that should leave just enough time for me to announce my review of the film Cats, which I haven't yet seen. Uh, But I will be expressing contempt for the film while also flexing my own creative muscles, which are far stronger and more powerful than... uh, those are the film's creators, by doing my review as a parody of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Here we go. Okay, cool. Uh, April is the cattiest month, breeding cats out of the dead cats, mixing memory in the moonlight. I winked there. (laughs) Nice, nice. Staring dull cats with spring cats. Cats kept us warm, covering earth in digital fur technology, feeding a little cat with dried cats. It's just all about cats. (laughs) Cats surprised us, coming over the cat burger sea with a shower of cats. We stopped in the cat lanade and went went on into cat light, into the hair garden, and drank milk and meowed for an hour. It's just all about cats (laughs) because of the film Cats being about cats. That's good. And like, there's a lot of puns and jokes you can make about cats. Yeah. And the film's bad, so one star, but I'm funny. Thanks. (laughs) Films, 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 lots of films, 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 films. He's good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars von Trier films, old films, new films, some John films, films that star Peter Fitch, films by David Lynch, films short films, six hours long. So, the BBC, much maligned right now for their appallingly uh, slanted and biased election coverage, but they have other output as well, and they have corrected for another criticism leveled at them, or I guess like, uh, you know, another imbalance that they've noticed, which is that when they did a recent poll of the 100 greatest foreign language films of all time, just four of those 100 films were directed by women. And they noted that uh, in previous polls of uh, top films in different genres and films altogether, women had a very low representation. And so, therefore, they have done a poll 
of the 100 greatest films directed by women, ensuring that women will be represented in 100% of the entries in the poll. Uh, and uh, they just released it last week. So, uh, Danny, what did you what did you make of this? I found it to be an interesting list, mainly because films uh, like lists of these nature that just focus on films directed by women aren't that prevalent, whereas like best of lists are like endlessly being produced by every film magazine or film output. And what's interesting about those ones, there's so much like received wisdom goes into it. I don't think like when Science Sound of a like a list of hundred best films ever, it's basically the last list with maybe like a five percent change. Yeah, it's like what gets swapped out. It's like sourdough or something. You know, there's always just the old. There's like a really <laughs> established canon. Yeah, in exactly. A way that there's there's not for female directed films. And uh, what I was surprised by was just how many of the films on the list were recent. I did a little count, and forty four of a hundred of them were made in the noughties. Oh wow. And Films like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which hasn't even come out in the UK, and The Souvenir, both came out this year and are on the list. And it's a case of like a lot of filmmakers, like Lynn Ramsey, like every one of the movies she's made has made it onto the list, which is probably not true of any male director, because I guess it's a short, it's a smaller data source. Yeah. But some of the picks led me to conclude that I don't, I think just like critics can't think of 10 movies directed by women. <laughs> And, like, I think my main evidence for this argument is that, like, Lenny Riefenstahl's on the list twice oh for God. Triumph of Will and Olympia. And it's like, if you've got to, like, every critic, they polled 368 critics, and you've got to list your 10 favorite movies. So if you, like, can't think of any films directed by women and go for, like, Triumph of the Will, which is, like, technically a very important movie in terms of, like, film grammar, but is not, I think... Most people... Was Birth of a Nation on the 100 Greatest Movies? Well, exactly, right? (laughs) And I also think it's a case of just kind of reverse wisdom of the crowd. So, like, critics who are a bit more versed in uh, the history of female-directed movies, whatever choices they make get cancelled out by people who just put The Hurt Locker and Lost in Translation because those are probably, like, the two... Not to disparage those movies. But they're very famous. But they're very famous female-directed films. Yeah, and I kind of... Well, the list is not made for this purpose, but I was kind of disappointed by how familiar it was. It was basically like the most successful working female directors right now, all their movies are on the list and take up like half of it. It's like, who makes movies like Andrea Arnold is like, okay, two of her movies on the list and like Lynn Ramsey, all her films, Celine Sciamma, like three of her four movies are on the list. It's like, yeah, it's it's interesting. And I feel I like... It, I guess it illustrates the problem that the that prompted the list to be... Yeah, yeah. Used in the first place, the sort of paucity of, uh, of of women directing movies. Yeah, absolutely. But it's stuff like I don't know. I don't think like at, right at a hundred was the kids are all right. Remember that movie from like twenty ten with Julianne Moore and Annette Bening? It was like a pretty solid indie drama. It's clearly not one of the best films ever made. <laughs> by do you know what I mean? It's like there's lots of middling films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I noticed that the Matrix is on here. That's cool. Which is cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm, glad that, I'm glad they've put that on there. It's and at 35, though. Like, there's no way that The Matrix is, is not better than The Hurt Locker. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Um, but I felt very smug and woke because I'd seen or heard of lots of these films. So, Oh, um, well, uh, <laughs> whoa. Well, well done, me. That's very impressive. Well, the only one I've seen is The Matrix. That's not true. <laughs> I've seen more movies than that one here. Tony Erdman, number eight. Yeah, no. She came up three years ago. I've seen a bunch of well, it is really good. Yeah, that's yeah. a great movie. I'm glad, that's, I'm glad that's really high up there. But also like films which are just uh, kind of mainstream hits, like Clueless and Big, and people like women directed those. But I don't think they'd ever appear on a 
just like a, a non-gender specific list. Yeah. You know what I mean? It really makes me think that people were just like, were given this task think of 10 movies and just but could do, not think of... So do you think there's a there's a better list out there or is it is it just because um, uh, filmmaking has been so dominated by men? Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> well, I think it's like d- definitely there's just more visibility around in this half of the this half of the century this century there's just like uh more literature written about women champion like film festivals are really making effort to include women more so it's just easier to think of a contemporary working female film directors than ones who haven't before but uh yeah i would like the bbc this list is not enough to make one which is like the best films directed by women the 20th century I think that's a more interesting list. That would be an interesting list. What has yeah. been just forgotten about because we're too busy talking about how good the opening shot of Citizen Kane is or whatever. You know, I want to, I want to, I want all these undercover, you know, history's not, what's the, like a male version of a whitewash, a male wash. History's yeah. a fucking male wash, okay? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, okay, yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and, uh, we need to uncover these bloody great movies. Don't know if I've got a bit of Michael Kane now. <laughs> Uh, women directed last century. You don't get points for knowing who Andrea Arnold is, okay? Everyone fucking knows who she is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. In like, there, I think there are nevertheless going to be like a lot of films on this list that people will not have seen that they yeah, yeah. might go, you know, seek out uh, because it's out there. People might be like, oh, maybe I'll finally get around to watching uh, Cleo from 5 to 7 by Ennis Varda, which is the second best movie ever directed by a woman, according to this. Um, and uh, And yeah, I mean... Yeah, I think, yeah, I'm glad that it's being produced. I think you made a lot of good points about it. I don't have a huge amount <laughs> else to add, except it does remind me of a lot of movies that I really want to see that I haven't seen. I really want to see Holland County, USA. Have you seen that? Yes, I've Barbara seen it. Barbara documentary. Yeah, man, which side are you on? Uh, it's the, the famous the song. <laughs> striking minus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is it good? Do you recommend? It's brilliant. It's got an iconic moment in it. I won't say any more than that. All right, well, if it's got an iconic <laughs> moment in it, then I really want to watch it. No, it's just like as if this wasn't a documentary, you wouldn't believe it moments in it, right, which is right, quite yeah. like chilling. Okay. Um, but yeah, I was really on the side of the, uh, the miners. I got to say the, uh, yeah, the workers. Pro, pro, pro worker. I got to say, I went in neutral and I could very quickly <laughs> found myself really siding mm. with the workers. Yeah, well, a great point. Glad to hear it. If you came out really pro boss, I would be less inclined to watch the film. How about this? A list of like, the uh, 100 greatest films produced by women or like the 100 greatest films where the woman was the director of photography. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. like the the lack of representation for women uh, behind the screen is not limited just to their not being directors, but their talent generally. Exactly. Actually, like the, the um, uh, uh, best films written by women would be an interesting list as well. Basically, Beeb, Basically, we need we need we need loads more. We need, we need more loads lists. Of variations on the list. We need lo- even though I've described why the lists are stupid and don't rework. Really we need loads we need more, more of them. More lists. We need more of those lists, and I want you to list those lists. <laughs> we need to know what the best of the, <laughs> the list is. I want ten thousand tough guys, and I want ten thousand soft guys to make the tough guys look tougher. And here's how I want them arranged: tough, tough, soft, tough, soft, soft, tough, tough, soft, soft, tough, soft. Sir, I'm afraid you've gone mad with power. Of course I have. You ever tried going mad without power? It's boring. No one listens to you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So this year saw the release of the epic documentary Leaving Neverland, which seemed to conclusively uh, prove the rumors that Michael Jackson was a pedophile. And... I don't know whether he's been cancelled or not. I think I'm still hearing his music and stuff. Uh, but you would think that they probably wouldn't rush to make a sort of like, I don't know, Bohemian Rhapsody style <laughs> biopic. Uh, but the producer of that, <laughs> but the producer of Bohemian Rhapsody, Graham King, has acquired the rights to Michael Jackson's life and music, I guess, to make a biopic of it. And Adding to this story, there was obviously a bit of uh, controversy. Like, is this a good idea to make a film about Michael Jackson? I mean, now that he's definitely a pedophile, molested kids, can we really enjoy it the same way? Graham King doesn't seem too bothered. Uh, but Johnny Depp saw this and he was like, hold my beer. And so he is producing a musical about the life of Michael Jackson that will be told from the perspective of the late singer's famous sequin glove. The uh, playwright of this play, Julian Nitz, wrote For the Love of Glove, an unauthorized musical fable about the life of Michael Jackson, as told by his glove. That's a long title, isn't it? Which he describes as a fresh, revisionist look at the strange forces that shaped Jackson and the scandals that bedeviled him. Apparently, Nitzberg said that a major TV network had asked him to write a film about Jackson, but pulled out after they couldn't agree how they were going to cover the allegations of child abuse. And then his solution was... How about this? Everything MJ has been accused of has actually been caused by his glove, which is actually an alien from outer space, which feeds on virgin boy blood. They laughed and said, can you do the normal version? And he didn't. But luckily, he's found someone as misguided as him to produce this show, Jonathan Depp. And uh, it's happening. So what which, the hell? which do you fear more? The, uh, the sort of... I mean... I assume that it cannot possibly take on the same tone and manner as Bohemian Rhapsody, the the Michael Jackson biopic. <laughs> but, you know, whatever. I guess the more mainstream take, which will be that one, or this kind of, like, wacky, fun version in which uh, an, an abuser is... Like, it's a revisionist take on an abuser. Vindicated. Where, like, <laughs> one of his famous uh, accessories is, is responsible for his crimes. It's mad. It's I- mad, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think any sort of film about him which doesn't directly... I mean, even if it was a film was about the child abuse, I'm not sure if that's even warranted or needed, given this documentary exists. It's like, you've seen the documentary, now see the drama, fictional dramatization of it? It's like, what's what's the point? Yeah, I don't know what the sort of like non-exploitative version uh, of this story could be. I don't know. Once someone's been revealed to be a pedophile, surely that has to be the focus of any story you tell about them, if you choose to do so? I guess so. It's a... You know, our our culture and uh, like the the sort of culture industry that we live in cannot possibly help itself but uh, churn out these kinds of things. And someone turning out to be a horrific criminal uh, is just another exciting aspect to their life that makes it yet more tantalizing for a for a film story. And uh, a lot of like musical biopics uh, feature you know the gritty side of the person that you didn't see in front of the cameras or whatever, like focusing on their drink and alcohol addiction or their like abusive nature or, you know, they're always troubled yeah, yeah. in some way. And I guess this is just a particularly extreme version of that. But the, the scary thing is the fact that a model already exists for this sort of thing. You know, he was a, he was a childlike wonder uh, guy in front of the camera, but the tunes that everyone loved to dance to and whatever. And then, but behind the scenes, he wasn't so nice. 
you know we've seen that kind of story yeah yeah many many times um and uh yeah i don't know how you do it in a way that's not tasteless maybe do it in like like several decades or something like that once we've got a bit of distance from this and you know it's not so fresh in the memory of his victims but i don't like what what do you think would be the sort of healthy way for culture to react to things like this when like absolutely iconic figures like people who someone like michael jackson who's produced some of the most famous songs of the century and you know is obviously his music is absolutely beloved and it's really great has this indelible cultural impact and if they turn out to be you know horrific a person like they've committed these awful acts what do you think would be the most healthy way for culture to respond to it like is it does it become wrong to to like uh, celebrate their music in this in a, in a really overt way or yes i guess so yeah <laughs> like i guess as you know if someone chooses to listen to his music that's fine but i don't think radio radio stations should play his music and i don't think people should make art based on his legacy like because all you're doing is perpetuating it, like it, yeah, all, like yeah. you know, his his mark on the culture is already so huge to begin with. You don't need to like add to it. That's true. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's up to everyone's. In, I, d- d- I don't know. Depends. Like, damn it. Well, Thriller's such a great album, but you know, the whole can you separate the art from the artist? It's like not really for Michael Jackson. For me, I would say because I I don't know. When someone's a paedophile, it's really like that. That's kind of the line in the sand, isn't it? For most people, when we did philosophy together, that was also always like the sort of worst crime someone could do in a sort of stupid, the ethical dilemma, the ethical, the dilemma. ethical dilemma. Yeah, that's yeah. like the worst thing anyone can think of. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. I would. I would like not. I would not go see these films. I do not support them being made. These films, these plays. Well, yeah, one film. One stage production. Yeah. What if that stage production is so successful it becomes a film? Yeah. I guess it, it I mean it boils down to opportunities to make money, right? I mean yeah, it's yeah. not really any any more you know, more than that, more considered than that. And uh unfortunately it's like I don't know, it's very easy to see this as just uh an example of a tragic and awful thing that happens to people just being fueled into, you know, uh, mm. so, I don't know. The sausage of money is made from the <laughs> yeah, yeah. the awful of crimes. <laughs> the sausage of money is made from the awful of crimes, Sam. <laughs> I don't think I can put it even better than that. Sorry if that's too profound. <laughs> we just got to draw a line on the conversation because you won't be surprised to hear that I, I wrote that months in advance and uh, and I just dropped it in as though I as though I said off the hoof. But it's impossible to to come up with things that profound. Wasn't that the title of your dissertation? For your MA? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's the tattoo, uh, a tattoo that I got the other day as well. It's just, it's, it's the, it's the words I live by. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it astonishingly poor? Out of Danny for the judgment, we're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So, The Nightingale. This is the new film, the second film, I should say, from Jennifer Kent, who made a huge splash in 2014 with The Babadook, which was on lots of people's best of the years list and currently holds a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. 2% of people didn't like it. And where are they now? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, The Nightingale, it's set in, 18, in the 1820s, I believe, in Tasmania and focuses on Claire, played by Aileen Francis... Francisie? She's got a. She's Irish, but she's got a sort of French Italian surname. I can't pronounce it. Uh, she is a young Irish convict, and the plot is basically she's chasing a British officer through the rugged Tasmanian wilderness and is bent on revenge for a terrible act of violence he has committed against her family. 
And on the way, she enlists the services of an Aboriginal tracker called Billy, played by Bikali Ganambar, who is also marked by trauma from his own violence-filled past. Here is a clip of them or the start of their journey where their soon-to-be friendship is still in its infancy and she is riding on a horse, pointing a rifle at him and making sure he's doing the tracking right. Bloody dangerous riding with that. Blow your head off. You need to move. Move, boy! Wait, will ya? Wait! Go the wrong way if you want. Them soldiers went this way. So this movie premiered last year, and as you mentioned, you enjoyed lots of controversy and walkouts. And a year later, it's finally arrived in the UK, and it's got a reputation for having some sort of challenging scenes. I was oblivious to all this. <laughs> I just got a ticket to uh, a, like a rare screening because it's gone straight onto. There's only a few screens around London, and it's um, on demand already. And there was a Q and A afterwards chaired by Helen O'Hara, a big fan of her. I was like, and I'd heard nothing but great things about The Babadook, which I hadn't seen at this point, which I've now seen, and, it, and it's excellent. So I was like, great, a little movie day by myself. Uh, I um, I hated it, <laughs> I gotta say. It was uh, not a not an enjoyable enjoyable time of the movies. And the second the credits rolled, I was just straight out of there. I was like, I don't care if Sam Claffin's turning up. I gotta, I gotta get out of here. So it's got a particularly horrible scene which is the sort of inciting incident and i think the movie basically struggles and ultimately fails to recover from it and it's like they've uh, played the music too loud and my emotional speakers are now blown and i cannot <laughs> and the rest of the song sounds tinny and weird is, is this a good metaphor it is actually i think i like it um because basically if you start your movie at like 11 intensity it's got nowhere to go and if it had maybe fully committed to its kind of hideous tone, I thought for a while it was going for like a very austere kind of Cormac McCarthy Blood Meridian thing or uh, maybe something like The Proposition, another Australian sort of Western uh, written by Nick Cave, which is also quite McCarthy-esque and it's like the world is hell and everyone who populates is also hell and there is no hell, we're already living in it kind of thing. But it kind of tries to morph into a quite a traditional Western double act. You can sort of imagine... The same story being about a Native American and a white woman in the ye old West. You know, they both got a shared common enemy and they discover they have more differences. They have more differences and they don't become friends. <laughs> They've got even more differences. <laughs> They've got even more differences. They've got, you know, more in common than uh, divides them. But it tried to, from this hideous beginning, it tries to have like these moments of like humor and stuff and i'm like i'm just not buying it like i can't be uh expected to feel anything but dread and i was like nah i, I think basically i kind of mentally sort of checked out the movie quite early on and the movie just did not win me back rounds and i think it's also very clumsily put together the toolies basically have this sort of hatred of the fecking english and uh the film draws quite a sort of obvious and clumsy comparison between the subjugation of the native population and the subjugation of the main character and just women in general and um, I'm not sure if there's much to explore about colonialism other than it's bad. People think they've got the divine right to treat people hideously, but it just spends a lot of time and doesn't investigate it. If there is indeed something to investigate, it feels very one note. And this is particularly true of the villain characters played, ably played by Sam Claffin, who I'm a big fan of and I think he's a good actor. But 
you know, he's just like an evil, cartoonishly villainous, racist uh, He's like a dude. sort of like Braveheart English noble type. Guy. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's just like racists aren't that interesting to hang out with. And there's just a lot of him performing atrocities and they get less impactful. And they, after like the first scene, sorry to dwell about how much I hated the first scene. It's like when the, another like bad thing's happening, you're like, are you fucking kidding me, movie? Like, haven't you, haven't I paid my dues now? Of Like, I get it the past is a hellish landscape and terrible things happened just felt kind of repetitive and a bit exploitative and also i think sam claffin's character is clearly like obviously a product of his society but a bit more like of a sociopath than the other characters if you know what i mean which i think dilutes the argument it's like the way ray finds is mad in schindler's list it's like the problem isn't like one lone not job it's the entire system that enables this person you know what i mean like yeah yeah absolutely it's not just it's not like a rotten apple it's like the whole thing is fucking terrible and also the main heroine's characterization is really bad and it's constantly coming into conflict with the plot mechanics a character basically kind of does what the plot demands and it's got a real sort of back and forth structure particularly in its final act which makes it feel very overlong uh, and also it's very corny it has like dream sequences <laughs> of like people who have died like coming to scream at the camera and stuff and it's like real like six form drama territory it's like it's like the uh, ghost wife from the revenant yeah yeah it's a bit like that it's like in case you've forgotten that she is thinking about something that's horrible that's happened to her here is a ghost person to turn up i think the cast are very good they're kind of giving it their all but basically just like the subject matter asks a lot from an audience and the story doesn't give enough back and although i'm a big fan of just generally exploring uh, colonization because that's a subject which is rarely rarely has a sort of perspective on it there's like um there was a good think piece about the nightingale in the context of just like british colonial movies and the sort of huge boom of them post world war Two, like zulu or something where we go kill all the black people but there's like a hundred of them and like and there, we were, we're, the, we're the plucky underdogs, we're the plucky underdogs but we've got guns so we're obviously not yeah that kind of stuff but um yeah i just i just the movie took a lot from me and gave nothing back. The movie is the colonial force, and <laughs> I am the native. Your, it's, yeah, your, your natural value. And I'd say if you if you want to see a, a really good movie about the subject matter, uh, Sweet Country by Warwick Thornton, which came out last year, is really good. So, if you want to see something about uh, the Aboriginal population of Australia and its neighbouring islands being decimated by the British, that is a good movie. This movie uh, is not good. All right, uh, five stars out of five hundred stars. Looks like Sam's got a film to review He's just getting ready now Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you That I hope are gonna help you out You gotta come prepared, try not to rush Speak directly into the mic Um, don't sort of use filler words too much And try to avoid talking total shite Okay, start reviewing now I kind of wish that uh, One of us had seen both The Nightingale And Frozen 2 because, like, seriously, it is it is genuinely about colonialism. Cool. And, uh, you know, it'd just be interesting to see what the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, whether someone can um, legitimately argue that there's a much more, like, <laughs> nuanced and uh, rich argument to be made about colonialism in, in Frozen 2 than in uh, The Nightingale. Anyway, so Disney has produced an inevitable sequel to one of their most successful films in the last 10 years or so, uh, Frozen. A kind of uh, a princess, a magical kingdom type story uh, in which it was sort of distinguished by um, 
it's rather a feminist treatment of, uh, of the central characters, these two sisters, and it kind of plays you thinking that the, the romance is going to save the day, but it turns out that the bond between the sisters is more important and the men are secondary. You know, which I, I think I saw Frozen on a, on a plane and I was like, I approve. I approve this message. I'm Sam Foster and I approve this message. Uh, and I wish the film had edited that way as well. <laughs> <laughs> with me saying that so I could associate myself with it. So anyway, it's back. Um, the same creative team behind this one, directed by Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee. Another Jennifer film. Uh, coincidence? <laughs> um, and uh, it's once again got uh, all of the lovely characters um, who you know from previously and a lot of big tunes. Here is a clip of Anna, voiced by Kristen Bell, uh, having a picnic with the lovable snowman Olaf, voiced by Josh Gad, who is uh, waxing poetic about growing up. This will all make sense when I am older. Someday I will see that this makes sense. One day when I'm old and wise, I'll think back and realize that these were all completely normal events. I'll have all the answers when I'm older. Like why we're in this dark enchanted wood. I know in a couple years, these will seem like childish fears. So I know this isn't bad, it's good. Excuse me. So I did not I did not come to this film with any great attachment to the Frozen franchise. Uh, so I didn't have huge expectations of the sequel. But I was pleasantly surprised. I kind of saw it because I wanted to go to the cinema and there wasn't anything else uh, particularly on. Um, but I thought it was rather good. I think for the child's audience, you can only be uh, delighted and pleased by the scampering around and you know fun and games if you're like you know the, the characters that you know sure, they, kind of thing. they do stuff there's colorful vistas they, they do stuff yeah there's another kind of uh, classic adventure uh, setup in which uh, elsa who's the queen of arendelle who who learned to control her ice powers in the first film she receives a call from the wild and then they set out the the, the gang from previously her um her sister anna uh, olaf the snowman uh, and christoph uh, who's a sort of lumberjack type guy with his companion reindeer Sven who's Anna's boyfriend they all get together and head off into the enchanted forest to find the source of this uh, voice that's been uh, calling to Elsa and sort of causing troubles in Arendelle and I, I yeah I think it sort of hits the things that you need to do like it's it's beautifully animated as before uh, the songs are kind of they're like very anthemic and I, I did feel a bit like they might be sort of straining a little bit too hard to match the epicness of Let It Go which is obviously the big hit song from the original Frozen um, and then there wasn't uh, any like single song that particularly struck me but you know perhaps it there, it's the sort of thing I, think, I actually find these things quite hard to judge like what's a generic pop song and what's an incredibly catchy one that will become iconic i think it's really hard to find out in a few weeks i guess but exactly exactly find out in a few weeks and i guess if you have kids and they want to put this movie on all the time they're probably going to start singing <laughs> one of these songs uh, but i thought you know they, they they all did the job but i did think that it really has something going for it in the sort of uh, message to it and i and like you probably can get a bit too like uh, pipe smoking and uh, you know cerebral about your interpretations of children's films, but they're very they're always very moral. You know they're always yeah. imparting some kind of moral lesson, which is something a bit we talked about when we had our episode about uh, insect animations and what like how they have different models of society and what their politics are and stuff. And you know, the interesting thing about Frozen is how it takes a, a standard kind of fairy tale setup with the princess and the and the prince and the kingdom and all that. You know, which which has sort of 
rather traditional and you know conservative uh, romantic values all the time and then it kind of undercuts them by by you know saying that the value of uh, the princess is not in who she's going to be married to but you know she has her own value as a person and the sisterly bond is more what kind of thing. they're teaching women this so in this in this movie they it takes it's a similar kind of a thing but like this time the the material that they're using to give a progressive message is the medieval kingdom mm. so rather than looking at the like interpersonal relationships so much of the of the raw family it's now about like uh, what the wealth of the kingdom is based on which is like i don't know it's it's rather yeah. ambitious in a way <laughs> and I'm basically the story that develops is to do with a, a rural and more magical community it's doing that sort of classic thing where like magic kind of represents uh nature and uh you know uh i don't know like like the a natural less, world the natural world it's like less developed you know right right and, like, the, the purer, purer exactly like and the power of industry and all that kinds of stuff and like development kind of cancels out magic like the urukai <laughs> the orcs and stuff chopping down trees it, it burning killing, shit. Killing, yeah exactly exactly killing the ants exactly yeah like stuff you use, you use coal and there's a lot of smoke and stuff that's yeah, yeah, bad that's bad and like flowering uh, trees and woodlands and brooks and all that that's good uh so that so there's this like neighboring neighboring group and there's a bit of backstory about how like uh, the kingdom went there i'm gonna uh, i don't know i'm gonna give you the plot <laughs> of the way of this movie because i don't i don't give a shit i want to talk about it <laughs> if you want to go in totally like totally blank you know don't don't listen on but anyway so so there's, so there's some backstory that develops in which uh, you you learn that um the princesses uh uh, father when he was a kid went over a sort of delegation and they had this relationship with like the local kind of druid people who look they look somewhat mongolian they're a bit like a sort of step nomad people but they live in the forest kind of thing and uh and they they gave them a gift of a dam on their uh on their river um and then this was supposed to be a kind of peace offering uh and then it it turns out later on in the film that uh the dam is like sucking the magic out of the forest and this caused this kind of permanent rupture in the uh, between the two kingdoms and then the cool. sort of solution has to be that you know re- re- you need to like destroy the dam and return things to the state they were before and that's actually a rather sort of sophisticated message about uh, colonial extraction of resources yeah and that like going in and kind of quote-unquote developing a quote-unquote less developed society which you know is often sold as uh, an act of altruism that's supposed to you know benefit other countries can just be a form of uh, extraction where you destroy their way of life, put in your own industries, and you take their resources away and impoverish them. Yeah, and that the wealth of the you know the kingdom is kind of built on that stuff. It looks all very nice, but underneath it, there's this like injustice, which is the the, the consequences of which you're still living with today. And so, like by kind of reversing that, they have to give something up. And the film like. I thought slightly cheated it at the end. Like there was a point where I was like, holy shit, they're really going to go. For- <laughs> they're yeah, really yeah, yeah. going to go for this. Uh, and they don't, they don't quite commit to the sort of logic of that. And they kind of had, has a skate and eat it too. But I was a bit like, well, it's, it is, it's ultimately a children's film. Sure. Sure. So fine. But um, the kids will like it. Because <laughs> little stupid babies like it with my big adult brain is disappointed. Um, but I still, I was like, you know, I found it hard not to applaud that, that general, that general idea because so often like these kinds of um like well-meaning movies uh end up just being rather patronizing to mm. you know it's very easy to lean into the sort of noble savage type um tropes yeah, yeah absolutely uh which i thought this uh did not do and it deliberately at least it had a deliberate attempt to avoid it by tying in the uh the sort of forest people 
with the actual people in the kingdom it turns out they're sort of interrelated or whatever like you know yeah, yeah. so they're not the outsiders turns out they were always they were there all along type of thing yeah yeah um um, and I was I was kind of reminded of something like Pocahontas, you know, like another story of uh, of colonialism, but that was has been criticised a lot. I actually have not seen Disney's Pocahontas. Have you seen it? Years ago, like yeah. literally when it came out. So, well, it's a. I I was looking it up afterwards, uh, and I was like, I wonder how Disney has treated this kind of subject matter in the past. And it it you know it came came under a lot of flack basically for taking what's actually quite horrific uh, historical story of exploitation and like turning it into this like lovable Disney tale. Mm. Um. And it's clearly a film that was well-meaning and tried to um, give Native Americans uh, a positive uh, portrayal in the film and is somewhat critical of the settlers, but at the same time, you know, isn't really getting to the heart uh, of the matter. Uh, and, and I thought Frozen 2 is doing doing a pretty good job. So, you know, got to give it got to give it props for that. Zootropolis, the Disney animation guys, they're, pretty, they're pretty they're woke. Sw- they're switching on. Switch on. I mean, you know, they're never going to be like, it, I'm, I'm always sort of reminded like one of the tweets that i often think about is like um there was this discussion about how left-wing black panther is yeah uh when that came out and then like people were sort of criticizing it for like having a sort of heroic cia agent character and all this um and then someone uh, tweeted something like uh my favorite bit of black panther is when he turns directly to the camera and explains that he's the same kind of communist i am yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh and i think like it's a really good point you know like you know this the what that tweet is obviously getting at is that like these like major blockbuster films are not going to be radical really like they're, yeah. they're not going to like be this sort of incredible anti-system uh, polemic that's going to sort of leave you fired up to like you know destroy this structural injustice in your society but basically if they're going to have vaguely progressive messages you know they can be better or, or worse and there was something that was really fresh and good in in black panther even though it's you know not a sort of radical leftist film by any means and in the same way, I think there was like something unusually good about how Frozen Two tells its story. So yeah, okay, give it a, give it a thumbs up. I might see it. How's it doing uh, at the box office? Is it I doing assume okay? well. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I like, how it, could I, it not? I heard it was struggling. <laughs> <laughs> I heard there's rumors it won't break even. That's oh, I, I do. I do have negative comments to make about Frozen Two. My big cri- my big critiques. Yeah. Firstly, I really don't like the snowman character. I think he's one of the Olaf. most one of the most annoying comedy sidekicks of any Disney film. Well, I've isn't that just Josh Gad in general? He's just like a bit annoying. It's just annoying. It's and an annoying he's annoyingly guy. animated. I don't like the design of him. His mouth is too big. I just don't like it. Uh, <laughs> and also, the two sisters I think are quite similar. They just sound the same and like they look very similar. You know. So that's my beef with that. Other than that, good. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Start talking now. Knives Out. This is written, directed by that franchise-killing pariah, Ryan Johnson. <laughs> um, and it is a kind of modern take on Agatha Christie, who done it. The star of the movie, legendary mystery writer Harlan Thrombery, I think is basically sort of the Stephen King of mystery writers in this universe, has committed suicide on his 85th birthday. And the police are have gathered everyone who's at the party, which is his sort of extended family, interviewing them. But aiding the police is gentleman sleuth Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig in a sort of full foghorn leghorn mode. And he believes that 
foul play is afoot. Here's a clip of uh, Jamie Lee Curtis playing Linda, the uh, Christopher Palmer's oldest daughter, sort of confronting his involvement in the case. Mr. Blanc, I know who you are. I read your profile in The New Yorker. I found it delightful. I just buried my 85-year-old father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I'm here at the behest of a client. Who? I cannot say, but let me assure you this. My presence will be ornamental. You will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer of the truth. So I saw this at the London Film Festival with a packed, uh, packed out audience. Packed out audience? They were all packed out, just all of them. Just like, lots of bags <laughs> with them and stuff. The screen, in fact, was also packed out. And I saw it again uh, a few days ago. So I've seen it not knowing anything, and then I've seen it you knowing, know, everything. knowing everything and seeing how well constructed it is. I gotta say, I had a lot of fun with this movie. I thought it was a total blast. Lots of like very clever plotting. I think Ryan Johnson is one of his key strengths as a writer and director is just a real sort of screenwriting 101 of like set up an act one, pay off an act three kind of stuff, which is just more, I guess, more necessary for this type of movie and just more impressive when it's done well. And every incidental detail will come back either as a you know, as a funny joke or a plot point or something about a character or a detail. And even, uh, you know, it's not all, not, it's not like every single thing is the plot, but uh, the way it sort of establishes its large cast of characters and they all pop, I would say. And yeah. all the A-listers, it's got a great cast like Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Chris Evans. They're all having a great time. And it's not a in an annoying, I'm watching, I'm paying for someone else's holiday way, but in a sort of infectious way where it felt like it was a lot of fun to make and it's a lot of fun to watch uh and i think the sort of most obvious example of this is daniel craig just relishing not being bond he just gets to sit down didn't have to work out he's wearing a very uh, comfortable looking coat that looks very cozy he's doing a ludicrous accent which is like borderline well not even borderline it's just quite hammy but kind of brilliant it's, and well it's a bit like his accent in uh, logan lucky yeah, another, another southern drawl that he can't quite pull off. Yeah, that and like, but it's also kind of paired with a slightly kind of flowery way of talking. Yeah, he which, chews up every line. Yeah, which is just I had a lot of time for. If they just make a franchise of Benoit Blanc movies, I would be fully on board for it. What did you? Uh, what did you make of it? You hated it? No, no, I, I, I really liked it as well. I just, uh, I've only seen it one time, so my opinions are half as valid as yours. That's true. Uh, the other week i thought it was i thought it was great i think i agree that it's a, a very well constructed film and i think basically what i liked about it is that it's uh in some ways undercut your expectations for a film of this genre this is like it's like a, it's like a it's a completely classic setup you know rich guy in the mansion that the patriarch dies the family uh, all have motives to kill him it's basically a game of cluedo you know? yeah and that brings with it all sorts of baggage in terms of what you expect but it's the sort of film that you know, reminds you of the value of cliches because it creates expectations that can then be subverted in fun ways. And then it also delivers on your expectations of the genre in that it gives you an exciting mystery, which has a clever solution that you didn't see coming. And it all, it all falls, you know, it all kind of, yeah, yeah. kind of comes together. And I think one of the uh, shortcomings of a lot of these types of movies, like detective stories that are very reliant on uh, clues and plot twists and stuff is that sometimes the solution you know, it might have been a very uh, neat one in terms of how it was constructed, but it's not necessarily dramatically satisfying. Like, this is a bit of a, um, you know, random comparison, but just this morning, I watched an episode of the television program, House. <laughs> and uh, in House, uh, you know, he's a he's a, 
uh, disease detective. Yeah, he's like he's, he's, so, he's solving he's like the Holmes, clues, right? He's Sherlock Holmes, but a doctor, and he's solving the clues to to find the illnesses. And in this episode, you know, it's the sort of classic thing where he's got all this guy's got this like mix of bizarre symptoms. They can't figure out what it is, and then eventually they kind of put all the clues together and they work out what it is. But the, like the solution is just like something I've never heard of. Yeah, but yeah, that yeah, happens yeah. to fit the symptoms, and sure. I'm sure that like it's a real illness and it's an ingenious bit of plotting on it, but it has no dramatic impact whatsoever because it's just like oh it's this thing you know i looked at the index and it was this illness whereas in this movie uh, it all has a purpose and it's really doing something with all of that and when it all like comes together it's dramatically satisfying as well as you know it has that kind of like watchmaker precision type thing you know the last piece of the jigsaw falls into place and it's like oh that was really clever uh, while also telling a good story at the same time so i thought, I thought that was great and the other thing is that it's it's using the setup to tell a story about immigration. It's a clearly very self-consciously pro-immigration film, which not only puts uh, an immigrant character at the center of the story, who's the kind of um, hero of the piece, not wanting to give too much away, but, uh, uh, but also um, shows up the kind of bigotry and entitlement uh, of, uh, of Americans, this sort of rich group of Americans, but also like you know, clearly gesturing towards broader attitudes and like broader relationships yeah. between America and, you know, and people who come, uh, people who come there. And uh, yeah, and I, I, I found that rather refreshing as well. There's this like thread that runs through the movie about people getting what they deserve. And yeah. like in a lot of detective stories, there's that kind of arc of moral justice or like natural justice, mm. you know, where the, the, the villain gets their just desserts kind of thing. And in this film, there's a lot of argument about like who deserves what. Uh, and then the movie has a clear viewpoint about who who deserves what, <laughs> uh, and I found I found that good as well. Yeah, because all I mean, all Agatha Christie's stories are kind of about class as well. In that, it's all like the mur- the motives for murders are often to either avoid or prevent a scandal or to cover up a scandal or whatever. And like you know, the Lord of the Manor actually like knocked up the maid and stuff. And I think it's just a very clever translation of you know like britain obviously has like a very baked in class structure and so does america but it's rarely actually put on screen in that way yeah i think that's something this is another weird comparison but something about like i really like about the social network is that the idea of like oxbridge americans like you know what (laughs) i mean we rarely see that even though people talk about going to harvard all the time it's like there is a class system in america it totally is they don't have old it's not old old money but there is old money yeah and um and yeah the main uh actress uh, Anna de Amos who's mainly just was uh, Ryan Gosling's uh, hologram girlfriend it's like oh this woman can really act I mean they finally, she finally got a role which wasn't just like you are the hot uh, mysterious character uh, yeah that stuff was all great and it's quite a rarity it's a big crowd pleasing movie with like no explosions it's original story you can't it's got it's doing very well at the box office oh, is it? released on the thanksgiving weekend That's very very cannily placed in the calendar perhaps because it is like you can everyone can go see this movie and enjoy it uh yeah it's a kind of throwback but also got its finger firmly in the pulse of 2019 it feels like um a continuation like a creative continuation of the last jedi in some ways like he's given meaty roles to types of people who, who do not normally receive it and uh this sort of like masculine hero type people you know the actors who would normally play those types of roles are kind of uh, being subverted in this film and it has nods to uh, the criticisms from like alt-right types i say nods i mean direct references really yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um you know all, all of those like uh alt-right youtubers who hated the last jedi because like uh, laura dern had pink hair in it or whatever 
you know, and he's got like this little alt right kid in the film, and uh, a little Nazi boy. There's complaints, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's complaints about uh, SJWs and stuff from villainous characters. Um, yeah, and it's basically satisfying to see Ryan Johnson double down. Uh, yeah, and to return to a common theme we have in this podcast about like uh, frustration with mainstream entertainment, feeling like it's detached from a contemporary political context. And this film is obviously made by someone who's reflecting on the politics of america at the moment uh and staking out uh a, a place in it and making an argument about it that does not boil down to trump is a cheeto yeah, um, yeah. and uh, and so that 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 is rather refreshing as well yeah thumbs thumbs up for knives out so two we got two uh, thoroughly mainstream films with progressive values that uh tell you know express them in a good way yeah. frozen two and knives out uh, and then and the, the Nightingale, the, which the is... The Indie Arhouse film. Indie Arhouse film, that's bad. It's fucking bullshit, okay? <laughs> Spend your money. <laughs> these huge studio pictures full of famous people, okay? Yeah. Do not wait, support. Do not support these independent filmmakers. This, this female director on her second movie, okay? <laughs> Let's make sure she never works again, okay? Well, Frozen 2 has a female director. Co-director. There we go, there we so go. Okay. There you go, support, support Jennifer Lee, not, yeah. not Jennifer need, Kent. She, no, not Jennifer Kent, Jennifer Lee. <laughs> My favourite film stars Bridget Bardo She's the queen but she wants to be in radio So she starts a podcast with her friends And the terrorists try to stop her but she beats them in the end Danny, have you seen the new uh, Bond film trailer? Yeah, no, no, time, to, no, no time, time to Die No Time to Die No, 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 Time to Die Say, so, uh, the film obviously went through a bunch of different creative iterations Danny Boyle was going to direct it, then he wasn't going to direct it And apparently his film was... Um, basically chucked out the script here is chucked out and they fished from the uh, waste paper baskets uh, the uh, Purvis and Wade script that they'd written and this to me looks like continuity bond yeah don't know how you felt about it well I guess they had a, a few big name hires because Kari Fukunaga is like he's not some journeyman director he's a I guess you consider him an auteur right his films are very visual and he did True Detective he did that he did that long take in True Detective he did that long take and Phoebe Waller-Bridge was brought on to do a script polish, so there'll be some jokes about anal sex or something in there. Bond will be l- looking to camera a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it felt like a bit past it. I know he's like, he's old now, right? Daniel Craig, he's 51. But aren't like all of the, I feel like all of his new, it's been an odd thing about the new, uh, the Daniel Craig Bond movies. They're all about him becoming Bond or like just retiring as Bond or he's just starting retiring. again as Bond. I don't, I don't get retiring. it. Like yeah, exactly. the, the end of uh, Skyfall. Wait, was it Skyfall? The one where Judy Dench dies? Yeah. Yeah, the, like the end of that movie was kind of like, that's right, real Bond is just beginning from now. But it, the movie is also about him kind of being a bit past it and retiring, yeah, whatever. It's the beginning. He's too the old. End. He's too old for it. Yeah, so I don't Spectre, know. Spectre, he leaves at the end. Corner of Solace, he leaves. He's always, he's he's always, he just got caught away and he quits, right? <laughs> right, exactly. I don't understand. Got no, uh, he's always starting and stopping. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit disappointed. Well, it's somewhat inevitable, but like Rami Malek is another scarred villain. There's too much facial disfigurement. feels like a thing from the past. Shouldn't, Definitely. You shouldn't have your villains have facial disfigurements. And that'd be like, that's why they're so That's why they're evil. so evil. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Outrageous. Not cool. Not cool. Not woke. Uh, and also these new Bond movies, they're very like episodic. I mean, like, I mean, you've seen a lot more Bond movies than I have. Seen all of them. You've seen all of them. But like, I always felt like each Bond movie was a standalone, you know, you could kind of mix between them without sort of 
disturbing the continuity or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the, in these ones, it's always like the same cast of characters who who really leave very little impression, but you recognize them from their previous films, so they're <laughs> yeah. they're definitely back. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I find that a bit weird. I mean, it's it's like it's kind of. Uh, you know, because things are more episodic now, um, films are television shows, television shows are films, and... Um, <laughs> uh, down, cats and dogs living together. Yeah. So it feels like a bit more of a piece a piece um, uh, with uh, that kind of um, trend rather than... I don't know, it just looks a lot like the last few last few Bond movies. Like very slick. It's got that... Um, uh, who's the fancy suit maker who does all the suits? Tom Ford. Tom Ford. I don't know. I feel like he's also set designing and doing the cinematography. Yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. very, it's very, like, got a very particular kind of uh, fashion, fashiony aesthetic. I don't know. I thought based the thing that I'm mainly hoping for is just some good stunts. Good stunts. There was a nice shot in the trailer of a kind of like a big motorbike jump, kind of kind of coming up onto like a huge crowd of people. It looked like it would have been difficult to do that. Would have been <laughs> so that looks, that looks hard. Looks hard to do. So, uh, so you know, I like it if there are some nice, nice stunts in it. I also like it if um, the influence of someone like Phoebe Waller-Bridge introduces like a bit more. I don't know. Like, if you're adding gags, it might just give you the impression that Bond has more personality because he's been such a fucking block of like empty muscle <laughs> in, in, the, in the series to date. Yeah, it's just. I don't know. The fact that uh, Anna de Armas is like one of the Bond girls, every woman's dream to be a Bond girl. And she was just in Knives Out with Daniel Craig where they have this like avuncular relationship. Yeah, like, yeah, now, yeah. Like, is he just going to like bang like someone who's clearly... Some sort old, of sultry yeah, woman with like, no lines. Yeah, exactly. He's like 25 years as junior and it's just like, oh, you, now that like, you've, you're over 50, it's just getting creepier and creepier. Yeah. I also feel like with Daniel Craig that... Uh, he has struggled with the the role of Bond because it demands this kind of iconic quality, which I just don't think he naturally has. No, he definitely is someone who, you know, is muscular and looks good in a suit and is kind of like you know I don't know a, a slick looking guy. But I don't think he has this effortless cool which the the iconic nature of the role kind of requires, and that he's always having to project it. And I just feel like that when he stands and he's like he looks like he's been trained to be cool you know he's got like a big broad stance and he does things with a flourish and yeah but he's not i know what you mean he doesn't he doesn't have that like he doesn't ooze charm in a way that you know this this role has to do so i think that's a that's a bit of an issue for him yeah i guess so well he's hoping the cars go fast and he gets some gadgets and and um, his fucking dick gets wet his <laughs> dick gets wet <laughs> yeah brilliant the franchise demands it <laughs> All right. All right. See, see you next week. Uh, whenever, however, whenever, whatever bizarre schedule we release these on. The next, yeah, next week Christmas special. Yeah. So we're going to review Star Wars, Rise of the Skywalker. You're going to review Cats. You know, real. You're not going to see Cats. I, I don't know if I get if I get the time. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> not that fast about seeing Cats. All of the digital fur. <laughs> Poor Tom Hooper. He's got a you know second house to buy. Yeah. He's just all to turn up. Yeah. All right, well, I'll definitely be seeing Cats and we'll review the new Star Wars. I'll be giving Cats um, five stars and Star Wars one star, just so you know. Nice. I'll be saying Star Wars one cat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we'll also do our top tens and it'll be fun and games and Christmas frivolities now that we're all in the festive mood. (laughs) Yes, exactly. 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 All right. Thank you, guys. Goodbye. Goodbye. There will always be a special place in my heart for the movie musical. 
and for the songs that create their most memorable moments. Here to perform the Oscar-nominated, gorgeously empowering song, Let It Go, from the Oscar-winning animated movie, Frozen, please welcome the wickedly talented, one and only, Adele Tazim. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.